Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we have one of the most real, authentic leadership conversations that I think I've had yet. We talked to Dr. Jill Seiler, who recently wrote a book called Thrive Through Five, The Practical Truths to Powerfully Lead Through Challenging Times. And Jill's a longtime superintendent. She now helps work with aspiring leaders all across the state of Texas. And what I found refreshing and uh, enjoyable about this conversation is we just dove into real challenges. We talked about how do you embrace failure? You know, we, we talked about, you know, some of the ideas she has and when the pressure feels high as a leader, what do you do? Well, one of the, one of the ideas that she talks about is reminding yourself that it's only a season. Well, I don't know if you're like me, but, uh, I've struggled and I know my, my superintendent and assistant soup friends have struggled with and principal friends have struggled with the fact that this season that's, it seems to never end. So what do you do when it feels like the challenging season you're going through doesn't end? We also talk about um, the importance of how we talk to ourselves. So self-talk and how do we break a cycle of negative self-talk? Uh, we talk about how to find the right kind of mentors. It just... What I appreciate, you'll, you'll notice as soon as she starts talking, you'll notice how genuine she is, how confident yet humble she is. And so it's, it's not a conversation where she's someone who's just telling us, here's all the answers. It's someone who just points out the challenges and problems that a lot of leaders don't often talk about or don't feel like they have a safe place to talk about. And she just gives us ideas of how to process and so it's a really enjoyable conversation. I encourage you, you know, if you're an aspiring leader or a current leader, it's a great conversation. Um, if you're not, if you're not an educator and you're listening, I think it's a really great conversation about leadership, not just about educators. As always, as you listen, if there's someone in your life where you think could really benefit from hearing Jill's words, uh, you know, I don't know if her name is that well known yet, but it should be. The after reading the book, it's something that. Uh, you'll see, it, 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 I, I expect it to hit so close to home with so many of you. And so enjoy this conversation. She's wonderful. Like I said, to share uh, this with anybody you think could be uplifted by Jill's words. As always, we appreciate you. If you're already a subscriber, if you're not, please hit the subscribe button. Your uh, support is greatly appreciated. And um, thanks for listening. Enjoy this conversation. All right. So Jill, thank you so much for making time to be here this day. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, as you know, our first question is the same for everybody. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? So I am Jill Seiler and I have been in public education for 25 years until I just transitioned my role where I'm supporting leaders across the state of Texas. And um, I love what I do because I, gosh, I love the impact that we all get to have on kids in my profession of education and specifically as a leader, getting to support other leaders in their field as they're trying to do their very best. Um, I love this work that I get to do. Did you always have that passion for education? Meaning did you did you always know you wanted to be an educator and be in the field of education? Not at all. Um, in fact, I think I changed my major a half dozen times while I was in college. I ended up um, with a super beneficial major of politics and philosophy. Um, but given where I ended in my career, which was superintendent for almost 10 years, uh, really that it truly helped in terms of just the ability to think critically about something and, um, and just being savvy about the decisions and the implications and the climate in which you're working in. Um, but no, I had no idea. In fact, the summer before I was supposed to start graduate school in public, 
public policy, economics, like that was kind of my love. Um, I worked a summer camp working with kids and I was teaching and coaching for the first time, fell in love, went to Texas, started grad school and about six months in, walked into my advisor's office and said, I have to make a change. I have to go into teaching. And I'm so glad that I did. That is awesome. I, I don't know what it is about camps. I was at a camp between my junior and senior year of college and saw this flyer for like a alt cert product, uh, opportunity to go work in urban schools throughout the country. And I decided at that point to drop my finance, well, I kept my finance major, but drop my plans for working mm-hmm. in the financial world to go teach. And so I don't know if we have, we've been brainwashed by these camps, but it's the best decision I ever made. And it sounds like it's the best decision you ever made. For sure. Yeah. So you were a, a division one swimmer. Is that right? It was. And again, uh, kind of by happenstance as well. Um, if you've ever heard me speak, I talk about all of my um, just misadventures in athletics growing up. I was, gosh, egregiously tall, over six feet, even as early as middle school. And of course, everyone thinks you're supposed to be great at all of the sports. And I tried them all and I was horrible. Um, but leading into my sophomore year, I had tried everything and my parents were just really set that I needed to be active and get involved in something. And we had a pool. I thought I would give it a try and fell in love with that sport and ended up swimming at the university of Pittsburgh. That is nuts. My friends who swam in high school and college, I mean, the amount of sacrifice that they had to make. I mean, first off, I struggle swimming a lap and they would just swim laps for hours. Uh, But the early mornings, the late nights, what are some of those career benefits that you got from a sport like swimming and the sacrifice you have to make to be good at that? Yeah. Well, and first I'll say, you know, it was a a bit of a gift for me not to start until I was in high school because I went to college with so many people that have been swimming since they were, you know, five, six, seven years old. And there was a level of burnout that I never experienced. In fact, my career ended long before I really wanted it to, because I just, I love that sport so much, but I think some of the daily disciplines um, that come with swimming um, in terms of just the regimen and the schedule and understanding that it takes a certain amount of work in order to get to where you really want to be. Um, the just discomfort of getting into cold water every morning and recognizing that this work that we get to do is incredible. No matter what you do in education or any profession that you're in, the work is incredible, but it's also really difficult. And we have to understand that 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 is part of this work that we do. We cannot be flawless. The people that we're working with are not flawless either. And so there's going to be challenges, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be discomfort. And so getting to um, face that every day by getting up early and getting into a cold pool those are some things that just stay with me now, though I don't wake up early as early and I don't uh, get into cold water. I still have to get into really hard conversations and do hard things because that's part of the great work that we get to do. Yeah. And a lot of the things on my Instagram, I see all these folks that uh, the movement, the cold tub pool or like the cold tubs in the morning. I wonder as a former swimmer, if that is PTSD or if that actually excites you. A hundred percent. And no, the shower stays on warm the entire time. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, uh, you know, you're not from Texas. I spent, I went to college in Texas. I'm just curious, what was the transition like, uh, coming from Pittsburgh down to Texas? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in Rochester, New York in a small village, had a small school kind of experience growing up. Um, my parents had a job change. And so I changed high schools, my junior year of high school, which at the time was so traumatic. Um, but looking back, it was so incredibly beneficial. Not only did I move to a school that had an incredible swim team and kind of led me to be able to go to division one, but also, um, just that experience of reacclimating, establishing yourself, um, and understanding that you get a chance to 
to be the person that you want to be. And having that life lesson two years before I went off to college was really important and critical. I went to Pitt. And while I did that, my parents moved to Texas. And so I made the transition down once I finished uh, my undergrad and then fell uh, in love with a lot of things, uh, my spouse, uh, the state, all the things. Um, and I've been here for 25 years. Yeah, I find that, uh, you know, I feel like most places in Texas will welcome anybody. They want you to keep coming. Obviously, they don't want you to talk trash about Texas, but uh, as long as you embrace the culture, I feel like it's an amazing place and people are incredibly welcoming. Yeah, it's a great place to be. So I, I know now, first off, how long have you been a superintendent or how long were you a superintendent? So I served for nine years in a district just north of Dallas. Right. So after nine years, you've worked towards uh, working with aspiring superintendents. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So I work statewide right now, and I'm leading aspiring superintendents, first-time superintendents, really leaders at every level across our state who are trying to get to their next path or just be successful exactly where they're at. So I work for our state organization to support and equip leaders. That's awesome. So when you're thinking about the next group of leaders, the aspiring superintendents, mm-hmm. what are some common traits, qualities that you're looking for that you think are make someone a good fit for the uniqueness of that role? You said earlier, you know, it, you know, well, you didn't use your poli sci philosophy background very much in your career. Once you became superintendent, I bet it became really important. So there's just a unique nature of that job. I'm curious who, who fits that job or who, what strengths are we looking for? Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to note that um, leadership in general, and specifically the superintendency, has become increasingly increasingly more complex. The job has always been challenging. It's always been hard, but there is a level of complexity to the job now, especially with regards to the political um, just context in which we're having to lead in that make it a really um, challenging position. In Texas, we've seen just an outpouring of people leaving the profession. Um, and you see that with educators as well, but we're seeing it at the highest level as well because of the increasing complexities of the role and the personal toll that that takes. And so when I'm talking to my aspiring leaders, you know, we're trying to teach about the basics in terms of how to get the job and how to be successful in the job. But we also want to make sure that they're really clear about what they're about to walk into and what that impact is going to be on them personally, on their family, and to make sure that they are ready as a whole person to step in this role. Um, I'm looking for traits like, um, you know, and uh, just a history of success. I'm looking for people who are always talking positively about the great things that that person's doing. I'm looking for initiative and curiosity, but more than anything, I think we need good human beings in these roles um, because this work is important for our kids. What, when you talk to leaders that you think would be a good fit, that they don't want to do it or don't think they want to do it. What what are people's biggest concerns or fears? As you talk about fear in your book, we'll get into it in a minute mm-hmm. of stepping into that seat. Yeah, I think that there's two different kinds of people that that I really work with. Um, and you know, one group is just that um, you know they know what the job looks like, and, and it's difficult to know, right? We don't know what we don't know. And so, even if you're sitting in that assistant superintendent, deputy superintendent, like the highest level, but eight feet across the hall from the person who sits in that chair, you can't know what that is like until you sit in that chair. Um, And so even though you might be six feet across the hall from the leader, it is a mile, you know, 
a long distance away from, from that role. And so, you know, I work with people who kind of know what the job is and they just need that extra push to here are the skills, the resume, all of the things that you need to get to that next level. Um, and there's some in that group who are like, gosh, I just don't want to take that step because I know the toll that my superintendent takes personally and on his family. And I just don't want to take that step. And then there's a group of people that I work with who have all of the giftings um, to be incredible leaders in those roles, but they do struggle with that self-doubt. Um, you know, we kind of look at what what does that typical superintendent look like? I'll tell you, when I went to our aspiring superintendent academy 10 years ago, um, I only saw a specific kind of person going for that role. And here I was as a female, as a young mom with young kids thinking, gosh, can I do this work? Should I do this work? And so part of my just calling in this is to put before these aspiring superintendents an entire cast of leaders who are incredible, but so incredibly different in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, um, you know, kind of experience, kind of leader. We think that a leader looks like this, a certain kind of box, but in truth, so many people have such incredible talents that will do and serve well at that level. Yeah. I think one of the things that I noticed early on in my education career is that the superintendent, the path, to a lot of superintendents was a high school principal, some sort of sports coach. And that leads to you to assume what the superintendents look like. And I just was always thrown off. I recently talked to uh, the superintendent uh, in North Carolina and of Wake County, uh, which we had her on the show. And she was a French teacher. I had never met a French teacher become superintendent. And we talked about how that unique skill set has actually helped her be a better superintendent. And so I don't know how you help people, but I hope folks, if they, as they read your materials, they dive into your work and as hopefully listen to this podcast, they don't think, like you said, they don't have to look like a certain resume is you have leadership skills. Can you bring people together and we put yourself out there to lead, right? Yeah. And in, and in fact, the profile now of a superintendent is so incredibly different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you really could just work up the ranks and, you know, kind of go that, that method that you talked about. But right now you have to have that instructional leadership. You have to have that understanding of how to be political savvy, you know, how to be politically savvy in the world. Yeah. Um, and if you don't, that 10 years is going to be short-lived. Absolutely. So I, I would love to talk about your book. As I was saying earlier, before we even started taping the podcast, uh, reading your book was a perfect time for me. Um, and often I, I can't read all the books that we do, but I have read this one and it was one that I just really appreciated for my own heart. And so tell me just a little bit, you know, it's called Thrive Through Five Practical Truths to Powerfully Lead Through Challenging Times. Mm -hmm. What was the impetus of this book? Um, where did this, where did this come from? Yeah. So, you know, I shared in the beginning of the program, like I love what I get to do and I've loved my job at every role. I started as a paraprofessional, was a teacher and a coach, a campus leader, a district leader, and then had the great privilege to serve a superintendent. And I've loved every role that I've had. And I tell people all the time, like, I love my job 95% of the time. And people are like, gosh, that's great. And it is, but there's this percentage of this work that we do. There's this percentage in our personal lives and our professional lives that is so incredibly difficult. Um, almost indescribably difficult. Um, it's, it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to share with other people that make the job so, so difficult. And for me, for a long time, it was kind of like, gosh, you know, let me just find a hole to crawl into until this passes, you know, in a couple of days, like the news cycle, the social media cycle is going to pass like this too shall pass was my mantra. But the truth is, you know, and I think COVID was a, a, a good teacher for this is that some things just don't pass the way in and the time that we want them to. And regardless, 
we can't be in that place where we just constantly go for survival. Like, I'm just going to wait for this to pass. I just need to do whatever I need to do to survive this moment. These jobs that we have are becoming increasingly more and more challenging. And so how do you do more than just survive those moments or those seasons? How do you truly thrive? And that's really where I wrote the book from. Of course, long before COVID uh, was even a thing, turn that manuscript in, but how do you leave when times are really challenging? Well, one of the things, I mean, I, again, just a couple of quick notes that uh, people who have not read this book, they need to understand why. I mean, it's been seen as the number one best-selling new release for ed, ed, education administrative books. It's consistently in the top 10 of the most important books to read. And uh, guests that we had a while on, which a lot of folks have read, John Gordon's work, uh, The Energy Bus, <laughs> and other, other great books he's written he was someone who endorsed your book very strongly. And he basically said, it's a must read for every education leader. Now I know you can't speak for him necessarily, but why, why do you, what, what is it about this book that uh, gives people with that kind of credibility uh, the belief to say, this needs to be a must read for every education leader? I think because the book speaks to the things that we don't want to speak about, but mm -hmm. everyone struggles with it. Chapter number one is about failure. How do we lean in and grow from those moments that we wish would have never existed in our past? Chapter two, fear. Like we all struggle with self-doubt, with angst, with fear about taking that next best step or just stepping into that place that we feel like we're being called. But those aren't the conversations that we have. When we get together with our friends and colleagues, it's, you know, how are things going? How What was the score of the game on Friday? night. Like we don't get to that place where we really talk about the fact that, Hey, I am overwhelmed. Like I am just feeling inadequate for this job that I truly feel like I was called to. And so I think that book speaks to just that piece of this is part of being human. This is part of our growing experience. And so let's talk about it. What does it look like and feel like to walk in the, the midst of fear or to, to lead through um, failure? Well, I think that's that's what spoke to me is that, as you know, whether it's being a principal or any education leader, but definitely a superintendent, it's lonely and it's tough to mm -hmm. uh, process all of the things that you talked about, fear of failure, right? Or real fear just in life or not being enough. Uh, all the things you go through, it's just so authentic, um, but it's hard to process that. One of the areas that I like about your book is that on your you have online resources as well that can go with, here's some tips, here's some questions to process. And this could be a great book to work through with those folks, even if they're not in the same city, but you've got a friend who's in your same job across the country. Have you seen that happen with your educator friends across the country in the last year or so? Yes. And one of my favorite things to do is just to do a surprise pop in on book studies that teams are doing. And so I've had leadership teams and teacher groups and, and just groups also all across the country kind of read through and have some discussion. And, and that's what I love just hearing about it is how is this impacting you personally? What has spoken to you? Um, that's a great gift for me. Well, I, I want to dive into a few of these, if you don't mind. I mean, the first chapter you said is failure is part of it, right? So you talk about, my question is, how could, how do you help leaders embrace failure, particularly in today's climate that um, you're nitpicked for everything? Because any decision you make, any, any failure you make can generally, as a superintendent, if you're a superintendent, can lead to being highlighted at a much mm -hmm. higher level from the social media to the number of blogs and other things that are out there. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, for so often we think about, you know, failure is just something that we have to endure, but we have to get to this place where we recognize that, that how we handle failure is the thing that can truly make us great. Are we the kind of leader that is going to be self-aware and reflective and take ownership and grow from and share a, a level of vulnerability with those that we work around that's going to do nothing but just gain trust from those that we work with? 
or are we going to shut down, have the walls up, project blame, cast it on others? Um, and in the end, that's going to do nothing for us. So how we handle this failure piece is so important. Um, and so that's always my encouragement to leaders is to be self-aware ask feedback, right? There's a difference between just having feedback come to you and then seeking it out. Yep. How are you seeking out feedback about the work that you're doing so that you can continue to reflect and grow and be better at this work that you do? I love that. Um, another, you kind of hinted at it uh, about a minute ago, but uh, one of your chapters, when the pressure is high, you know, you, you talk mm. about um, high pressure being like a season. And traditionally I would say that's true, but one of the things I'm noticing for my, you know, district leader friends, superintendents, non-superintendents, principals, whoever, is that this season for many people feels like it's never going to end, which is why I feel like we have epic burnout, people leaving the profession, all of that. How, what's your encouragement for folks that feel, okay, I get this. I know it's supposed to be a season and it's always been true, but right now it feels like this season is never going to end. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, um, first of all, we have to honor and, and value what people are um, feeling and what they're experiencing because it is real. Um, again, the superintendency today is different than the superintendency five years ago. And I would say that for any leadership position that you're in um, and you're right. So, you know, when I wrote this book, I really talked about just that pressure and, and the fact that it is cyclical and it is seasonal, but we've come to this place where we have to recognize that that's not always a situation for everyone. We are in these climates that are increasingly um, high pressure, high stakes all the time. So when we get to that place as leaders, you know, my encouragement then is to, okay, so we just have to recalibrate for a minute and recognize, okay, this is the work. Like this is the job. I, I might wish that it was different. I might wish that we didn't have these polarized groups that I was working with, but this is a job. And so if this is the job, then how can I readjust my mindset to recognize that, you know, my job as a leader was always to bring people together around the table, have a conversation, build consensus. Like that was the goal. And now we're in these environments where that is almost an impossibility. So then how do we lead differently to make sure that we're doing and giving our very best, making the very best decisions for our kids, but also able to sleep at night, knowing that we're not going to probably get to that place where we're going to have hundred percent consensus on the, the most difficult issues. And so part of it is just kind of stepping back and reflecting on the nature that we're working with and making a decision. Can I live in an environment like this where it's not going to be uh, <laughs> amazing? every day, right? This is the job. So knowing that this is a job, how can I better just recalibrate my mindset walking in where I'm going to do the very best for kids, but understand that the climate is different than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, I heard a superintendent in the midst of COVID, uh, say, I feel like every day I wake up to that day, I'm going to make the best worst decision I've made in my career because the way mm -hmm. the communities react. Is that something that uh, you hear superintendents say or feel recently? Yeah. Every once in a while, you'd have these issues, right? It might be a, a student discipline issue where people are you know, frustrated on both sides. If you do this, half the group is going to feel one way, half the group is going to feel the other. Um, but those were kind of one-offs. Every once in a while, you'd have a, a decision, maybe about an, a personnel situation, and people were going to be really conflicted. Now it's like everything we do, there are people who strongly feel one way about one thing and strongly feel another, you know, about the other. But I think engaging your community and helping them recognize, okay, 
in your table, the people that you're sitting with, there are going to be people who feel the exact opposite as you. As strongly as you feel that we should do X, there are people who feel as strongly that we should do Y. And both sides have valid reasons. And so we are here to listen and try to be more thoughtful about this and see how we can best move forward, knowing that we're not going to get that 100%, you know, unanimous, like just agreement all the time. Yeah. I mean, that that's a question I have for later, but I want to jump to it for just because it builds on the topic or it's a repeat of the same topic. You know, you encourage people to engage around contentious issues, which I love, which as a real leader, that's mm-hmm. that's what the best leaders do. They lean into the topics that people yeah. may not want to approach. But what's been unique, my parents, uh, both um, my, my mom, my stepdad have worked in like political arena. And I will say, I was just with them uh, this last week and they talk about how different politics feels right now in terms of Mm -hmm. they're they're on different sides of a lot of the uh, political spectrum, which is interesting. So uh, Mm -hmm. how they used to be able to agree to disagree and and get along. Now it becomes very personal if you don't see it Mm -hmm. a certain way. What's your encouragement for folks in that world where it's not just like, okay, we kind of agree, but that's okay, where people vilify folks for having a different opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think that has been part of the the challenge in the past couple of years. You know, we saw it early on with just the onset of social media. Um, and we had these keyboard warriors that were much more um, just bold behind a keyboard um, with a level of anonymity than anyone would be if they were sitting in front of you face to face. And now in the past couple of years, you've really seen it not only becoming more and more polarized, but a level of hateful rhetoric um, that is fueling it. And that has been super challenging. So we've always known that leadership is difficult and we've always known that we're not going to be able to please everyone. But now we also have to recognize that that piece of it is going to come with this level of um, hate that is difficult, impossible to stomach. And so again, it's kind of recalibrating yourself to, okay, like this is part of the job. Um, and not everyone's going to be cut out for that, but we can't let it take the joy out of this work that we're doing in terms of leaders, leadership. And so how do we surround ourselves with people who are supporting the work? How do we make sure we're tapping into the parts of the community, um, you know, tapping into all parts to hear their opinions and, and that sort of thing, but making sure that we have that support too, so that we're not hyper-focusing on that one person that is bringing such hateful rhetoric to the conversation. That's a great point. Uh, one of the things that I know from my, uh, I have a close friend who's going to be a retired superintendent soon. Uh, he's taught me just a lot about life is uh, he's been in some pretty big urban districts. And one of the hard parts for him, you, you talk about how you encourage superintendents or leaders to be led by others. And one of those ways that he, he always talked to me is finding the people in the community that you can trust to be able to, again, it's lonely. Mm-hmm. You don't really know who you can say what to and how to open up. And so what's your advice for leaders trying to find those people to help lead them, right? So when you encourage people to say, hey, go find this person and go to breakfast with them and seek their advice and wisdom, that's awesome. But you know, when you're a superintendent in a community, like being vulnerable can backfire sometimes. So how do you help people mm-hmm. find the right people to lead them? 
Yeah, it's such a good question. And and one of the things that I talk about is that, you know, when we're early on in our leadership career, finding those people to lead us is so easy, right? When we're kind of aspiring leaders, early leaders, like it's just that natural. But as we get further and further in our leadership career, it's really difficult because those people are now our colleagues and our friends, like we're serving with them. And so how do we find those people to, to lead us? And I'll tell you, that was one of the hard lessons I learned early on in the superintendency is that, you know, when you come into a community, especially one that that you don't know, um, you know, you're trying to learn everyone, um, but everyone is kind of interconnected. And right. so the loneliness isn't just because you're the only person in the job. The loneliness is because, you know, it is inappropriate to kind of share some of the difficult things that you're experiencing with those people. So then how do you find a different kind of network that may not be within your community? Maybe there's some social supports, but you can't uh, have those kind of conversations to really get some of the advice that you need. So some of the things that have been helpful for me is to find the networks of, of people that are kind of doing this work that you can lean into. In Texas, we have a phenomenal um, female superintendent group. And so there's probably 250 of us in there. And so at any given time, we can kind of put a question in our group chat and, and get some responses back. And we've begun to form relationships and do book studies and, and find ways to really connect and build those relationships. So when you have that moment of, gosh, I'm going through something really difficult, you have that person to call on to kind of lend that support and that wisdom that you need in that moment. But it is difficult, especially in the communities in which we're leading. So I have to assume that since this was a topic, uh, you talk about how we talk to ourselves matter. Uh, I, I remember being young, kind of aspiring leader. Uh, I built the Office of Innovation or helped build the Office of Innovation in the school district I was in and working with the most struggling schools. And my self-talk was miserable some days. Like I'm a very positive mm -hmm. person, uplifting, but I, I was very young and I was insecure. And it's interesting to hear even veteran folks, you know, I, I was a few years into my career, veteran folks have been doing this 20, 30 years having struggles with negative self-talk. One, is it prevalent? Do you think everyone struggles with this? And two, mm -hmm. how do you help people break that cycle of insecurity when it's a lonely job, when it's tough to figure out the network of folks to process with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first, I think that the negative self-talk is a direct symptom of just the self-doubt, the angst and the fear that we experience, right? Like all of that blends in to one another. And the output of that is this internal kind of negative self-dialogue. And I talk about that in the book that we can't um, talk. I would never let anyone else talk to me the way that I talk to myself. And I share this kind of example of, you know, when I was thinking about the superintendency, gosh, 10 years ago, I had all of these fears, right? Like I didn't know if I was ready for the job. I didn't want to move my family from where they were living to move to a different community. I didn't think that I would like it. I didn't know if I could balance being a mom and a superintendent. But as I've shared that lesson now, right, 10 years later, like those were conversations that happened at every single step along my journey from paraprofessional to teacher, from teacher to campus leader, from campus leader to district leader to superintendent to the role that I've had today to writing a book, to being able to speak in front of a public, right? And it's not just once, like it's ongoing. Even the event that I did last week in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, I'm still kind of coming into that event and trying to uh, proactively curb the thoughts that are in my mind. Like, hey, Jill, you have been called to do this work. You have a word of encouragement for these leaders. And I can sound inspirational on stage, but the moments leading up to it, the people that are closest to me will tell you that those moments are a struggle because I am in a deep place of doubt and self-angst and fear. And I've given that message 
almost a hundred times. And so I just think it's a real part of what we um, battle. And I don't know that it's something that, that you ever just completely overcome. It's something that you have to be aware of and then constantly find encouragement within yourself and within others who are pouring into you saying, this is the work that you've been called to do. And you have something to give to these people that are about to engage with you. It's really refreshing to hear you say that because I we had a, a a guest on recently who's a public speaker for a living, right? Author, public speaker, and he was talking about his own self doubt. And when you see folks like yourself right now, you are so easy to talk to, and and I know you're just like speaking out of your heart, so it's you know probably pretty easy to do that, but it's still terrifying, right? A little bit when you're like getting sure. up there, it's, but it, it doesn't look that way, and so it's just comforting mm. to see folks and to know that like if I'm struggling with that insecurity, probably everybody else is before they go and do it. So I, that, that should not be the reason I'm not putting myself out there. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, people ask, you know, kind of why, why do you do like, why do you get so vulnerable with people, especially around that piece around self-doubt and fear? Because when you talk about it and when you bring it to life and other people see that and hear that and go, gosh, here's this person who has been successful in the world's eyes, who has done the things, is on stage giving this message. And even they struggle with this fear and self-doubt. Like, I can do that too, right? The goal isn't to overcome the fear. The goal is to lead through it anyways. Every time I had that cast list of just fear and doubt, it wasn't a matter of just waiting for it to pass and then recognizing that I was ready. It was saying, hey, yeah, I am really struggling with self-doubt and fear, but I know, I know the evidence is telling me that I've been successful in all these ways. And I know that I'm being called to this next step. And so I'm going to step out, even though I'm having these fears and and this self-doubt behind me. At the beginning of the podcast, you had said that uh, we need more really good people to be superintendents. Mm -hmm. And as I think about a few of those that I think also should be superintendents who haven't, one of the the top challenges that I see, and these folks all have a consistent thing of they're they're married, have a family, is they they believe they're going to have to move a lot of places. And that has been like, as you climb superintendency, you generally have to be willing to move places. Um, And they are worried about what toll that will take as well as the political will take on their family. What are some tips you have for people who want to be superintendents or are superintendents trying to balance being a great parent, being a great spouse and partner uh, and being a great superintendent or leader? Yeah. So first, I think that we just have to recognize the reality of what we're asking these leaders to do. And certainly if you're moving up internally, um, you know, it's a much different kind of, of ask, but we are for the most part, having superintendents leave where they're rooted and move into these community communities to leave, to lead for a job whose tenure is less than three years sometimes by superintendent choice because they're wanting another opportunity or a, an ability to make um, more money. You know, one of the things we don't talk about a lot in the superintendent world is that many of the people who are in my aspiring superintendent groups make much more than the actual superintendent makes um, in, in the kind of communities in which they're going to get placed, in right. which they're going to be hired. And so there's this financial sacrifice um, that's really challenging uh, that they then have to overcome by moving. But regardless, the reality is when you take that role as a superintendent, 
you are, I mean, just a board meeting away from no longer being the superintendent and having your family in complete disarray and chaos because you're having to find where to go. And where do you go when things don't go well? And it happens often, um, again, whether it's a superintendent's choice or the, the board's choice. Um, someone told me, you know, the boards hire you because they like you and they fire you because they decide they don't like you anymore. Yeah. Um, this is a really volatile position. And so that piece, that uncertainty is part of the challenge of this work. Yeah. So before we move on to our, our closing questions, our rapid fire kind of questions, what bit of advice um, from the book or just from, you know, the speak engagements you're starting to do more of uh, lately, do you want educators to hear right now and aspiring leaders and current leaders to hear um, that you feel like they need to hear? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I've been talking about a lot, and I mentioned it just in passing earlier, is that I, I think that all of the things that we've experienced the past couple of years have taken a toll on us, you know, as educators and as leaders, we are the givers of grace. It's like, we have this endless abundance of grace, but when it comes to ourselves, we can become so stingy with that. And we get to this place and, um, we don't even recognize the the toll that it's taken on us personally. And so just this notion of being overwhelmed or this feeling in, of inadequacy, um, it is part of that growing process and not a sign that you're not the person for the job, right? That that feeling of being overwhelmed and inadequate, which we all have, but we do not talk about is part of this work in leadership. And it's not a sign that you weren't perfectly equipped for this job to which you've been called. And so that would be my word of encouragement that regardless of how you're leading and how you're feeling in that moment of leadership, that season of leadership, that that is part of this work. And it's not a pretty part. It's not a part that we talk about, but it's a sign that we are growing and we are learning and we are becoming our very best selves in the process. That's awesome. Well, I, I appreciate your willingness on a daily basis. I mean, not just in your book, but as you speak to just be vulnerable, right? And to talk about the things that you know that many of your friends uh, and colleagues are struggling with. Uh, so we close uh, our podcast the same way every time. So a few of our questions are, what habit and discipline do you use or disciplines do you use on a daily or weekly basis to help you be the best version of yourself? Okay. So I would love to say that I wake up at 4am still and uh, get a great workout in and like all the things. And I don't, um, I so wish that I had a better regimen or discipline. Um, but I am a mom with kids. And so every day is just a little bit of chaos, but I will say this, that every opportunity that we have, um, as leaders, as people is an opportunity to pour into someone else's lives and to help develop them, encouragement them, encourage them, equip them. And so that leadership is, is an ongoing act and every conversation counts, every interaction counts. And so that would be my daily discipline is to recognize that our words and our actions have power and how can we use those to positively impact others. That's awesome. All right. What book or books have you read either recently or throughout your career that you think everybody else needs to look into besides your oh, own course? Okay. Yeah. Aside from try this five. Um, so you mentioned John Gordon earlier and I'm a huge fan. I loved his power of positive leadership. That was one of my favorites. Um, I also loved James Clear, Atomic Habits, uh, Brene Brown, Dare to Lead. Um, and then on the instructional side, I love George Kuros, The Innovator's Mindset. Those would be a couple of reads I would encourage any leader to take. That's a, that's a one that we haven't had on here. Atomic habits is one that like, I feel like everyone has been rattling off. My wife just finally uh, decided to read it and finish it. And she's working with her district on it. So I, I love that one as well. Yeah. And if you haven't uh, subscribed to his three, two, one newsletter on Thursdays um, in terms of a weekly regimen that I always do, that's a fantastic one to get from him. Noted. Okay. Uh, so 
I, I love music. I believe music it can be the soundtrack of people's lives. There are folks uh, we've had on the podcast that music's not it, but like sports talk radio is or something, right? Mm-hmm. I'm always curious of this question. My friend Bentley gave this to me, which is what's on your playlist, whether you're working out, walking around the neighborhood, driving around town, uh, what, what kind of music, what kind of artists, what songs are on your current playlist? So I hate to admit that the origin of my latest love is Bridgerton, but I am a huge fan of Vitamin String Quartet, uh, which was the music that did the initial season is, has come in back in, in later seasons as well. But um, love that group uh, so much. My wife's going to be proud of that Bridgerton reference. That's hysterical. Fantastic. All right. uh, you're, you're around, you know, a lot of amazing leaders. I'm sure you're plugged into social media or, you know, other podcasts. What's the best advice you've come across with recently that, you know, you have felt just amazing and hit you, you know, right in your heart that you think others should hear? Yeah, I think the thing that um, is just resonating with me is that, you know, our actions matter, right? Leadership matters. It's not just what we know. It's how we do this work. And we get to decide how to do this work. Leadership is an incredible gift. It's an incredible privilege, but it's not without cost. And so my just encouragement to the people listening would just be that we have to recognize that this work is hard. Not wish that it wasn't, but recognize that it is. And if we're going to step into this calling of leadership, that is going to be part of it. So how do we lead through those seasons, those moments well in a way where we don't lose the joy of what we're doing, but how do we lean in and do more than just survive, but truly thrive? Uh, Jill, this has been awesome. I I really, thank you so much. Uh, if we didn't get a chance to meet, I would still have probably sent you a random email or twit tweet or something, just saying how much I appreciated the book and how it helped me personally. I hope this continues to uh, grow and the fire burns all across the country and maybe world, uh, because I think the impact that you have of being real and vulnerable is going to be so freeing for so many leaders. And I think it's going to empower folks to take where, wherever they're at in their leadership and go to the next level. So I appreciate you putting yourself out there and joining us today. It's fantastic. Thanks so much, Dustin. I really appreciated it. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.